0: Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Having a good conference so far? Okay. My name is Jean Cook. I'm the Director of Programs for Future of Music Coalition. I'm the Director of the Artist Revenue Streams Project for FMC. For the last two years, I've been swimming in data collected from thousands of United States-based musicians about the different ways that they make a living, all of their different income streams. We've got a great panel for you today. We've got some very knowledgeable people who are gonna talk about their experiences with income. And uh, I thought the way we could get started is I think probably talking about roles, we were talking about how roles are so important in determining what income you have available to you as a musician. Can I just get a sense of who's in the room? How many of you are musicians? How many of you are artist managers? How many people work at labels? (laughs) How many of you provide services to musicians, tech companies, startups, and or attorneys? Okay, cool. Well, I'm a musician. I play violin and um, I'm a touring artist, besides working with Future Music Coalition. One of the things that we found as we were doing our research project was just defining how income streams work for artists. So our project really had its start a few years ago when we published a blog post called 29 Streams. At the time, we were like, well, what are all the different ways that musicians make a living? All the different income streams that they use. And that was something that we had never seen anybody put together in one place. So we made a list. We came up with 29. Uh, We put them online. There were a lot of comments. People were very interested in the topic. And uh, a lot of people were speaking up and saying, oh, you forgot about this income stream or that income stream. So at this point now, we've got 42 streams. We've listed them all on our website, which is money.futureofmusic.org. And when we talk about the 42 different income streams, we usually separate them out by bucket. So the idea, and actually I think that Erin, maybe this is a good way to do an introduction. You can talk a little bit about yourself, but also the different buckets and how that impacts your income. Sure, hi everybody, I'm Erin McKeown. I'm a musician,
1: writer, and producer. And um, I'm also on the board of the Future Music Coalition and have done a growing amount of advocacy work in my career. I've been a professional musician since um, 1996. I have nine albums out, the ninth coming out in January, and uh, have started adding advocacy and policy work to my career in the last few years through Future Music Coalition. My income, talking about the buckets that Jean was referencing, um, for me there's three. So I have income as a performing artist. I have income as a composer, I don't play other people's music. I write all my own music. And then I have income as a sound recording owner. In the last, I've been on labels, been on a number of different labels, big and small over the years, and um, doing it myself right now and have gotten most of my master's back. So I have a bucket that is a growing bucket of owning sound recordings. So.
0: When we talk about the 42 different income streams, obviously no artist has access to all 42. I know in terms of Aaron's case you've got probably like what 15 or 10 or 15 different buckets. I'd have to go look at the list, but yeah at least And then I know for myself. I play in other people's bands. I don't write songs generally and um, I'm generally not the feature, what would be considered a featured performer for those of you who were in the last conversation I don't know if they brought that up or not so a lot of my income comes from uh, session being a session musician and uh, that's the vast majority of my income uh, probably about 93 percent because I think I just did the math so 93 percent of my income comes from live performances and then I have a little bit of money that comes from CD sales on the road although most of that goes to the people that I work with um, I've written like maybe one song and I get mechanicals for that song and um, I've done some recording and I get a little bit of session money from that. And then there's a little piece of my money that gets administered by the unions, God bless the unions, it's called the Sound Recording Special Payments Fund. Um, And that's for the time that one of my bands was on television or something. And then I ended up signing a lot of paperwork when I was there. And then a few months later, when they rebroadcast the television show, I ended up getting a check. So those are the different income streams that I have as a musician myself. Um, I know, Erin, that we've taken a look at that for you. Um, Do you wanna talk a little bit about how that breaks down and then we'll keep going down? the line
1: sure the fmc um artist revenue stream project if you haven't seen it has this really they, you guys did such a good job with your infographics um so they're really great and they have these pies that to me are now kind of iconic your life in pie and um so so as part of um uh, you know their project i asked them to, to do my pie and so i have my 2010 pie in front of me i wish we were able to see it on the wall but um uh, i'll just read it out to you just really quickly uh, before we move on um So for me in 2010, um, I spend 100% of my time as an artist and I make 100% of my income as an artist. I think those are important things to talk about when we talk about revenue streams, right? How are people putting their life together? For me, there's no other job. This is my job. Um, So live performance for me is 61%, which is um, pretty typical, actually, I think, for for most people who do what I do. Um, My uh, performance royalties, ASCAP, et cetera, are 15%. Um, CD sales on the road, merchandise on the road, 15%. Um, merchandise, um, I'm assuming, I think, remember we did this, that we off my website, probably. Merchandise sales off my website, 4%. Digital performance royalties, sound exchange, et cetera, 2.5%. And then um, my publishing income, mechanical royalties, and digital music sales all account for less than 2%. Um, So if you look at my pie, the vast majority is live performance. And um, the last thing I'll say about my pie is that live performance money, right? 61% of my gross income is pretty much zero when you put in my touring expenses. So for me as an artist, I pay my rent based on my royalties from ASCAP. CD sales on the road, of course less the manufacturing costs, and um, performance royalties and merchandise sales off my website. Touring is pretty much a net zero for me. Um, However, I can't not tour, right, because that's gonna drive all the rest of that stuff. So it's
0: it's a complicated puzzle for that. We'll move down to Chris from LeClaire Ryan, and you can talk a little bit about some of the artists that you work with. I know that you work with a range of artists from very successful urban artists to um, younger kind of emerging artists, and I imagine that the pies and how their income comes together is really different from artist to artist.
2: Yeah, um, just for those of you that don't know me, um, you can call me Chris, but uh, I have the big long name, Christiane Cargill-Kinney. I'm an entertainment attorney. I run the entertainment division at LeClaire Ryan. Um, I represent a wide variety of clients, but mostly music, and I really enjoy, my passion is DIY, so I represent a lot of independent artists, actually, um, in helping them create their brand, in helping them with agreements, and helping them figure out how to make a living as an artist. Um, So, you know, we have, we're a big firm, we have the big successful acts that are on major labels, and of course they... You know, those traditional income streams are what they are, but for the people that are in the room that probably want to know, you know, how do I make a living, and what does the pie look like, I would agree with Aaron that a lot of it comes from touring, and depending on what kind of show you put out, you know, and, and, you know, how you're traveling and everything, I I do see a lot of my clients uh, make a profit off of touring uh, quite a bit, but I agree that you do have to be on the road and touring and going outside of your area to uh, to really build your fan base and make any money. Um, I shared with them that I'm also still an artist. And um, so my pie would look silly because most of my, in- I have a good paying day job. So most of my income obviously is as an attorney. <laughs> so I can't give up the day job. But I'm also trapped in Los Angeles. So... Um, I can't really tour. I'm trapped in a pay- to play state. <laughs> its pay to play city. So I make hardly any money touring. Um, uh, you know, so it, it varies so much depending on where the artist is. Um, It varies so much depending on genre. Some fan bases are very, very devoted. Um, You know, I did a niche album in Celtic music, and I couldn't believe how um, devoted those fans are in Celtic music. Don't everybody go out and do a Celtic album, don't you dare. (laughs) But, you know, alternative music, you know, I have an alternative band, it's a lot harder to find, Um, you know, and so you go back to the whole needle in a haystack thing. So it depends so much on genre. Also, um, you know, with some of the urban acts that we represent or rap artists, um, I see endorsement deals come up and I was telling them, and I think it's fair with the advent of 360 deals uh, to include this as musician income, but I get calls from music clients all the time and I'll say, okay, what are we doing? Where are we? And they're like, well, this is a little different. I'm doing a documentary. And I don't know what I'm doing, and I need your help. Or um, I'm doing a children's illustrated graphic novel, and I need need you to put together the deal with the artist. Or you know, so there's all these new things where, you know, they've created this brand, and there's other sources of revenue and entertainment that they're exploring more and more, and and successfully, you know, I, Samantha Hale did uh, map the music recently. You know, um, Will Gray did this great documentary, Broke. Um, so, you know, they had a lot of success doing something that they were completely new to and it just kind of happened upon them. So, I've been seeing more and more of that with artists branching out. And, um, you know, uh, now it's pretty standard if you're with a major label that they're going to want you to sign a 360 deal. And the concept behind that, of course, is that they're creating you as a brand. So, if you're selling yourself in any entertainment genre, you know, market, That they should get a cut of that. So that is the uh, the 360 deal in a nutshell. They vary uh, depending on how pervasive it is. But um, but you know, I mean, artists that are doing it themselves are also savvy to the fact that there are a lot of different sources of revenue when you're creating yourself as a brand, and why not, you know, branch out and do other things that are related, but uh, but a little different.
0: I think that one of the most fascinating things about the artist revenue streams, the idea of looking at things according to the different revenue streams, is that, as, as Aaron mentioned, that there are different buckets according to what role you play. So if you're a recording artist, you have access to certain kinds of income streams. If you're a touring artist, you have access to other income streams as a composer, etc. But it also depends on what kind of a relationship you have with a label. Um, as to what your record, uh, what your what your income is going to be, where you are in your career. Obviously, people who have a higher profile and major record label deals their income is going to look really different like their live performance might be a big part of their income but another big piece of it will be say a record label advance or a publishing advance um so can you talk a little bit about some of the differences that you see in terms of people who are at a certain level and actually have um, when you do reach a certain level celebrity you are able to leverage a brand and to go out into other other areas but that may not be available to artists who are just starting out
2: Advances are quite large if you're on a on a major label, and even some of the subs. the the, the smaller indie labels, the advances is a, is a pretty small fraction on a lot of those deals, still. But um, but yeah, the big artists are going to be able to draw a quite large advance, and with the 360 deals, the advances have gotten even bigger because now they want to take you know 25 to 50 percent of everything you're making, um, no matter what it is, including touring. So, you know, they have to pay for that. And, and so they've increased the advances. So that can be quite substantial.
0: Would you say that for some of your artists in terms of label support and publisher money, that for them, like, would you say that sometimes it's uh, more than 60% of their income or 80% of their income?
2: You know, it's interesting because we were talking about this. I've, I've never done the pie chart. So, you know, to, to try to guesstimate it in my head... Um, it It certainly could be, um but I've never had to really sit there and figure it out and and calculate all the different breakdowns of uh and you know some of these people you know have great they'll have commercials or you know they'll be sponsoring a product, you know we do a lot of brand and endorsement type deals and things like that, so if they're a name. You know, you can get quite a lot of money from that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'm going to be making pie charts when I get back to my office.
0: <laughs> so our final panelist, who is also a musician, uh, but also represents BMI, it's Michael Drexler. And we've been talking a lot about kind of like the recording side and the performing side of income. But maybe you could talk a little bit more about the different income streams that are available to composers.
3: Right. So obviously, when we talk about the artist, I mean, that can may mean a lot of different things. And artists can wear a lot of different hats. And one of them, you know, obviously is a the songwriter hat when an artist uh, writes the actual musical comp- composition and then controls the copyright for that. And within the U.S. copyright law, there is a specific... Um, Couple, I think it's six exclusive copyrights and one of them is the right to publicly perform your composition that you as the, the writer control. But typically what happens is that you assign that right over to a PRO, a performing rights organization. So in the US there are three, there uh, is BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated, um, ASCAP and and a very small CSAC. Um, so, um, what we do is we um, collect those license fees for public performance on writers' behalfs and on publishers' behalfs and distribute um, the monies directly to the writers and the publishers. So that's where the system is a little bit different when we talk about labels and publishers where there's sort of a black box around. You have to recoup your money first. You don't really know what the accounting rules look like. Are you participating in equity stakes or advances? So here it's pretty straightforward. We collect the money. We take 15% for administrative fees off the top, and then we distribute the rest to to the writers and publishers. So in our last fiscal year, which just ended in uh, June 30, of uh, this year, we collected about 900 million dollars um, around the world and distributed 760 million of that to to writers, publishers and in for, foreign PROs as well. So it's a pretty significant Revenue bucket. If you take the whole PRO market, we're looking at a uh, 1.9 billion dollar market. So, so these monies are quite significant if you compare it to, let's say, a digital recorded uh, industry of maybe five, six, seven billion. So, so there, you know, you can see that there is there sort of in the ballpark. Um, so, my role, I oversee uh, new media licensing, which is you know, everything digital, mostly streaming services. So, we license Spotify, Rhapsody. Pandora, Netflix, Hulu, and you know, all these guys—we have about 10,000 licensees. As a whole, we have uh, a total of 650,000 licensees across the, the company. Um, so, in new media, we've seen actually a lot of growth, even though public performance sort of collections have been stable. Which you know you could argue is stable is, is the new growth because if you look at some of the other revenue streams like labels, uh, I mean the market has been basically cut in half. Um, if you take, you know, flat um, flatline revenues, new media has grown by about twenty-five to thirty percent over the last three years. So it's become, and then that's actually not a replacement revenue stream. This is sort of an incremental stream that uh, now writers see from services like Spotify. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that, to put this into context a little bit, I think in a lot of the other panels that you're gonna hear today when people talk about revenue streams for artists and kind of where are they making the money and where they're not making the money, that um, especially given Aaron's comment earlier about where their expenses attached, that when you think about this a little bit more, and especially those of you who are musicians have certainly done so, that the reality and the bottom line for a lot of musicians is that the income streams that don't have expenses attached to them, like the PRO money, um, are become more and more important for artists. And so, it's something that's really important to to. It's an important way to look at it. That if we're saying that you know, touring is doing really really well, well, touring expenses have also been going up steadily over the years. I don't know, Erin, if you want to talk a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I just was having lunch with um, another artist today, and we were talking about this. Sort of some of these myths that sort of get thrown around, and it's like, okay, the solution, you know, in this new world of the music industry is to go on tour, right? That's the sort of thing that gets sort of told to musicians all the time: go on tour, go on tour. And the other day, I'll have to look this up, and I'll put it on my Twitter later. But um, I saw a tweet come through my stream from an artist who was who said, "Look, anyone who's ever." Been, anyone who ever says to you just go on tour and solve it has never been on tour right <laughs> it's a ter- yes sure um it's a terrible experience in a lot of ways it's terrible on your body it's really expensive and it's not sustainable you know you you talk to many many artists and you know i I'm a healthy person and really take care of myself and like have not like spent 20 years on the road puking my guts out and staying up all night and um, you know there's a limit to it so it's to me it's not a it's not a viable answer so what Gina's is talking about becomes more important and as musicians we call it mailbox money right it's the it's the money that has no overhead that you walk to the end of your driveway and you pick it up
0: I have to say, I mean, just personally, as a musician, so I play with bands. I play with a band called Pulp that's from England. They ask me to play violin, and I tour around with them. I don't have any overhead costs as a side musician, and that's a huge difference between right. me and between Aaron. We both tour. We both get money from touring, but almost all of Erin's money goes straight out the door as soon as she's done. We've taken a deeper look at it. Um, for the, those of you who are interested in some of the case studies um, for our project, we're able to look at, People opened up their financial records to us, so we have like 10 years of, you know, record label statements and tour receipts and things from ASCAP and BMI. We're able to look at all of that stuff and see kind of how things change and how things measure up. What does net look like versus gross? And that for a lot of touring artists, you know, one of the artists, 80% of their income as a touring artist is uh, going straight out the door to pay for the people in the band and for the plane tickets and everything. Mm. There's another one who is a who subsidizes his solo career by being in a major band. He's a salaried member of a major band. So you're able to see how their touring expenses were not profitable for the first few years that they started doing a lot of solo tours. And uh, eventually then they were able to start breaking even. But it was the salaried work that they were doing that made it possible for, for him to launch his solo career. So these are the these are the economic factors that I think musicians have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But when we think about as an industry, something that Mike had brought up, the, the idea that certain income is going down, where is the replacement going to be coming from? If record sales are going down and digital isn't necessarily going to be filling that in, a lot of people will say, well, will touring do that? And it's a really complicated question.
3: Mm-hmm. But, but in addition also, uh, you know, some artists are leaving money on the table as well and that's sort of uh, mailbox money you're talking about um, you know when I look at some of these independent distribution companies that we analyze you know 30 40 percent of the writers are not affiliated with a pro and it's free all you have to do is you go to BMI.com you, you know you register you upload your works and, and that's it But with the sound exchange you know there's money waiting for you potentially already and there's so many artists that just haven't registered yet so there's you know 100% margin money sitting out there To be collected
1: yeah for me as an artist it's something that as i've learned more about it and i've spent really the last couple years like putting in the time to make sure that you know everything is registered properly for me um it's all going to the right place um you know that that kind of thing is worth it for me so that like you know month by month i'm getting checks from all the right places and they add up to allowing me to continue to make a living but I think maybe something that's unspoken here and I want to put out onto the floor is how important it is for for these companies, right? So this segment of revenue we're talking about, how important it is for them to be transparent, for them to be responsible, and for them to be easy to um, use for artists. Um, I have a a sound exchange problem that's been going on for a long, long time. (laughs) Actually really quite ridiculous. And I've talked to, to some sound exchange folks about it. And everyone I've talked to has been great, but still can't solve it. But that's, I think, as we talk about what's replacing, what's being lost, I think that this question of responsibility, transparency, and and ease of use and the ability to, you know, um, I love this phrase, but, like, clean the data, right? Like, easily to get it. I can't tell you how many places I've found where, for example, my name is spelled wrong in a database or they have me connected to the wrong record label or they have the wrong tour date links. And um, it's hard for, you know, I... I block out my day of a certain amount of time I'm going to spend on trying to clean that up because it ends up coming back to me in terms of this mailbox money. But um, I think that as the industry changes, I really want to advocate for, like, if you're in those pieces, and I know BMI and SCAP, you know they, they do a pretty good job with that stuff, but can we do a better job because it's really um, more and more important for us as artists that
0: that stuff functions properly. For those of you who are in the metadata conversation right before this one, that actually becomes it kind of gets thrown into relief a little bit because they're all arguing about what are going to be the standards for how people are able to find music, and then there was the guy who was like, well, I was an assistant engineer on this and I didn't get credited. Well, what if you were part of a string section on an album and you weren't credited? There's still money that's probably being collected from you from the AF of m fund, but if they don't know where you are, how are they gonna find you? There's a lot of infrastructure that gets driven in this industry by the major labels, and the major labels, we don't have to get into that too much. But like, but the major labels are really in a position where people are really relying on them for information. And if they're not providing the information, somebody else needs to step up and help them, help either them or help DDEX or help SoundExchange or help whoever it is that's out there that's trying to find these musicians to get that information. I think the union's done uh, the best job that they can under this, these conditions. But this is just kind of a, I guess, it's a call to arms uh, for the musicians who are in the room um, to educate the people around you, uh, the other musicians that you work with. Successful mus- there there's so many successful musicians out there who have no idea what sound exchange is, for example. Like mm-hmm. This is mailbox money. This is money that you can just go and collect, but you just have to give them your, your information. And I don't think that you should expect that they'll know who you are I don't think you should expect that they know how to find you even if you do like a 30-minute Google search then you can find you that doesn't mean they can find you so there's a piece of this where um, as we move forward into a more and more of a data-driven kind of culture when it comes to compensation that individual artists really need a lot of help I mean I think that's that's just where we are
2: I also um CD Baby has a great resource called DIY Musician and they have a ton of articles that explain you know, all of the different ways that are out there for artists to get revenue. Um, I write a monthly column for them uh, on just legal issues, basic legal issues pertaining to the music industry, but a number of people contribute to that and it's all about helping artists learn what's out there, Um, You know, they have articles about how to sign up with SoundExchange and all all these basic things that everybody should know, but how in the world do you keep up? Because the industry has shifted so dramatically in the last 10 years and even in the last five years. And there's companies here today that I talk to that I've never heard of. And, you know, I'm doing it constantly and Aaron's doing it constantly. And there's so much, you know, there's new tech companies popping up minute to minute, <laughs> you know? And so it's it's a great resource and there's other resources online like Music Think Tank and artists getting educated for themselves and learning all of these different resources is so important, especially for the mailbox income.
0: <laughs> so we're going to go to questions in a second because I'm sure that you guys all have things that you want to discuss. But before we get to that, maybe we can go down the panel and talk a little b- bit about we've talked about the income that you have and how it all gets put together. Um, Have you noticed any substantial changes in kind of how your income comes together from year to year or how your clients income come together or how your members incomes come together? Where has there been great growth? Where has there not been growth? Um, Kind of what, what do you think might be some new income streams that are worth taking a look at?
3: It's all about t-shirt sales.
0: Just Would make you sure you have, have
3: enough yourself? enough swag to that's sell. That's what they
0: keep saying upstairs, but, isn't it? <laughs> you no, know,
3: I mean, I've been in this business for a pretty long time as, as a musician. I made my living as a recording engineer, and I saw that business fade, and then worked, worked for a major record label, Sony Music, for, for about eight years. And then, obviously, during those years, you know, the recorded music industry has sort of uh, been cut in half, uh, essentially. So I guess it's not selling records anymore, that's, that's for sure. Um, but... Um, what we've seen at uh, BMI, obviously, we're pretty specialized in just the performing right, which is one of the six exclusive rights. Um, we've been sort of growing in the last ten years. We've doubled our revenues, and and now, you know, even though the last couple of years were flat, new media revenues are is still growing rapidly. So again, there is you know streaming services coming in, internet radio, um, you know, audiovisual services that are now being streamed on demand that are creating really new, you know, revenue streams that, that weren't uh, in existence before. So so that's where I see, you know, the biggest growth from that perspective.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, physical sales have dropped substantially, and we're on more of a singles model now. Um, so that has shifted a great deal as far as a pie chart mentality. Um, you know, I, I've seen with some uh, some of my clients that, don't listen to my sound legal advice, and uh, do it anyway, um, it, I have some uh, some very close uh, people that do a lot of cover songs on YouTube, uh, not licensed uh, <laughs> legitimately, but if they have a number of followers, and usually you're talking in the at least 30 to 40,000 range, you know, that are following them, the, the majors aren't stupid, I mean, they know that, people aren't going to go through the formalities of getting everything licensed and people are doing covers and it's out of hand and they can't rely on you know content id programs um Sony's more on the cutting edge than um than some of the others but it, it's not a you call them and see if they'll do it for you but if if you're high enough and you have enough followers they contact you sometimes and see if you want to just do their list of songs and they'll clear it for you and split you, you know and they, they get into a little partnership agreement with you so that it can make your YouTube channel more lucrative. I'm not telling anyone to commit infringement, but um, there are opportunities there because they obviously, for the majors, it's more lucrative for them to do that on the DIY model than to uh, sue a bunch of people. Um, there's, God, for the, for the bigger players, you see more and more, and it's, it's almost... Uh, almost embarrassing how much it is now, but you see more and more like car commercials where they'll, they'll partner with an artist and you know, they'll be doing a song that has nothing to do about their car. and you know, So the branding and the sponsorship opportunities for the bigger artists have grown substantially in the last 10 years, even the last five years, where a lot of people are doing that um, and incorporating that into ads. Um, gosh, you know, uh, and the touring's still a, a, a huge chunk for, for major artists. But yeah, I mean, those are the big shifts that I see right now. Mm
1: -hmm. I I have two things that I want to say as changes I've seen. Um, One of them, um, which could be, and I think was supposed to be at some point at this conference, was going to be its own panel altogether, but would be fan funding. Um, For me, I use a platform called Pledge Music and raised about half the money I need for my next record from my fans. This is the Kickstarter model. Everyone's pretty familiar with that. Um, Like I said, I I, I think it's a complicated answer and I think we could have a whole panel on it. I don't think it's the answer to the music industry and I don't think you can do it more than once. And I'd be happy to have an extended conversation with people about that afterwards. Um, I'd love to hear thoughts on that, but in the interest of time, move on, but that is one thing I see as a a change in artist income streams and ways that people are doing it right now, it's worth mentioning. And then the second piece um, is just somewhat more personal and I just want to add this, which is that for me, um, fortunately, I think, in the big picture, fortunately, my audience has always been about my age, right, so I started touring when I was 17 and um, I'm about to be 35, and so my audience has aged with me. And as I've gotten bigger, that the, it's spread. You know, the, the window has spread, so that now you know maybe there's people who are in their 20s who come see me play, and some people who are in their 50s. But for the most part, my audience has pretty much always been my age, and it's been really great because I want to speak to my peers, and I want to be I want to um, be in an exchange with my peers and speaking to what's happening in all of our lives. Um, and what's happening in people's lives right now that are mostly my age are they're having kids and they are not going to shows and That is a there's a, like, a crater Right. There's a crater in my audience that's happened in the last few years, and I expect it's going to continue for the next 10, you know, until people have time and attention again and their kids are off so that they can come see music. And um, I don't know that there's a startup that's going to address that, but I want to I do want to point that out as ways that artists income is really affected by a lot of things. Right. And we we also I also think it's worth mentioning here. We have not talked about the recession, but the recession has hit all of us and um, I think a few years ago I would have said haha here in the music industry we've been in the recession since 2001 but really that's naive what's happening now in our country and in terms of income inequality in this country is of a scale that we have not seen before and and I you know in the music industry whatever else our small problems are are nothing compared to the larger issues that are happening in this country and so I do want to mention that as as something to think about in terms of um, income
3: Hey, Aaron, quick question. Did you ever consider streaming those concerts live through Stage It or some company like that for those stay-at-home Why thank, moms? You. Why,
1: thank you for that softball? <laughs> no, but uh, that's
3: another, you know, inc- <laughs> incremental revenue stream. It's well, about, cool. four,
1: about four years ago, I started doing something that um, Stage It now does. And um, I did a concert series called Cabin Fever, and I used Ustream and embedded it in my site and used PayPal as a tip jar. Um, essentially what Stage It does now on one platform. But uh, about four years ago, I started doing that as a way to, as a way to raise money. I live in a... A picturesque cabin in um, a tiny town in Western Massachusetts and um, so I've done six of them now and they each have a different theme it's basically um, Wayne's world meets the Judy Garland show
0: and just to give a little bit of context to some of the things that you guys have been talking about in terms of Kickstarter or something that's new fan funding um, the branding stuff the YouTube stuff um, we did ask In our survey, um, we surveyed about 5,000 musicians in the United States about their sources of income, and we did ask about those things because we were curious. It's like how many musicians are actually getting money from YouTube? How many musicians are actually getting money from fan funding? And we actually found that um, 5% of the people who took the survey uh, got money from fan funding. Um, That's a little bit more than corporate sponsorship, which is 4%. Um, About... 1.3 percent of the respondents said that they got any money from youtube um that you know some of the bigger pieces of money that people that people were saying that they were getting not bigger pieces of money but more people were saying they were getting this money uh, would include things like, you know, producing other people's records, um, and then actually union money, like yeah. AFM special payments, secondary markets fund, um, AFM after fund, and then things uh, like uh, a- 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 ARC royalties and things like that. So that's just to put a little bit of context on some of the things that you guys probably have been hearing about in terms of like, you know, everybody's okay. coming up with like the next big thing that's going to save people's income. Uh, but I think that in in application, when we look at the US, there's very little data to know how many people actually get money from all of these different income streams. So that's one area where I think that even though we've done this study and it's been very successful, that there needs to be more work done. So we can really understand that. OK, questions?
4: What's
0: the AFM after fund? The AF of M after fund? So let's say you are a session musician, and you play on a recording. Let's say you're Whitney Houston's backup singer. Um, so when her music gets played in lots of places, like, for example, Sound Exchange collects money for um, for digital, they collect money for uh, digital streams for performers. 5% of, so 50% of the income goes to the label, 45% goes to the featured artists, 5% goes to uh, the AFM After Fund and they distribute it to the background musicians. The AFM After Fund kind of administers the session musician side of a lot of performer money. Um, questions. Yes. Michael, um,
5: great file. Thank you. is your microphone on?
0: Uh, it says it's green. Check. <laughs> it's okay. I can hear you. The on. Anyway, Michael Ashton
5: and James Boyer. Michael, I have a question for you earlier today in one of the panels on international licensing. Licensing it was brought out the EMI. Thank you. EMI has, I think we are back this-
3: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we can hear you, though.
5: Is- yeah. Okay. EMI withdrew its um, performance licensing rights from its like, ASCAP and BMI, I thought, yeah. but, uh, and is administering them directly, and getting advances for their catalog with those visual rights uh, users yeah. that want to have advantage of their publishing rights. And so what I believe that means is that songwriters who are EMI songwriters will not be able to get their, uh, their payments directly for their 50% share, which they would have gotten if, had, they been, had they stayed with BMI and ASCAP and CSAC. But now, if I'm correct, that means that EMI music publishing will get 100% of the advance and they won't pass that money on, more than likely to their
3: songwriters until it's earned, but do you have any information about that? Well, you're almost correct. I'd say like 85% correct. And, it's a, <laughs> and it's, a, it's a big issue. So what happened is EMI did withdraw its April catalog from ASCAP. That was more than a year ago. Uh, sort of pretty limited withdrawal, about 200,000 titles. Um, only affected um, audio-only services that could be bundled with other rights, did not affect uh, licenses that were in effect already. And now what you're referring to, I was on the same panel today, I think it's a there was an article in, in the New York Post, and as we all know, the New York Post is always right, so <laughs> it's definitely right. <laughs> that there, um, And it was about universe, uh, Sony ATV, actually. Um, some executive... Um, voiced their intention to potentially withdraw um, their catalogs for digital uses only from uh, ASCAP and BMI. Uh, As of today, none of the contracts have been negotiated, nothing has been announced. Um, it's been a, a little more than a rumor, but I think it's, there's a chance that there may be some sort of withdrawal happening. And to your point, I, I agree with you that it's it's a troublesome uh, development, because PROs, as I said you know, in the beginning, pays the writers directly. And there's no recoupment schedules, there is no issues with advances. And as you probably also know, Sony ATV just completed the acquisition of EMI Music Publishing. So, there is probably some cash required to pay for that. So, that's just my own personal opinion. So, you know, what would stop them to withdraw their catalog and go to somebody like Apple and uh, ask for huge advances in exchange for, for a license? And by the way, you're absolutely right, those advances, writers would probably not participate in those. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, there's some, you know, articles that I've read that they're specifically excluded from any from any recruitment schedules for for the writers. So it's it's a big issue, and, and not to mention that now licensees, you know, startup companies, we have licensees from big to small in in digital media, and we make make it very easy for startups to get licensed for licensees. We're a one-stop shop, or maybe one of the two one-stop shops and you can get licensed today for 300 bucks essentially if you have zero revenue and zero activity on your service you get access to our entire catalog now you know transaction costs are increased now you have to go potentially to the publishers you have to go to, to more places let alone international rights so i think it's a it's a troublesome uh, development i think writers should really m- revisit their their uh, agreements with with uh, their publisher
0: can't underscore enough oh. how important it is for individual artists who don't have a team that's working on your behalf. You don't have a label that you have a really great relationship that you know they're going to pay you fairly. How important that 50% that goes to you through ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, through SoundExchange. How important that is, and not participating with them always. I mean, it just it ha- it's there's it's just almost impossible for musicians to come out of that oh. well.
6: Yeah. Next question. Okay. Um, is how can we get BMI and ASCAP to be, be more proactive with our licensing for our music? Why aren't there more? Um, like even uh, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, just to sign up for there, there's very few little spaces that you can put information about your work. How about a metadata for BMI? So we can protect all these other artists. Publishers and writers, and and to be, and that, these are our licenses. I mean, every other product has a license or a description about what it is. Why are we, you know? It's always like, let my people go. You know what? Who are you know? Why, why are we always, you know, why? It's so frustrating. Are you talking about the registration? S- I'm system? talking about music in general of, of, of uh, why aren't you getting paid for your work I feel that it needs to be first of all uh, the people that publish it and write it it needs to be uh, put in uh, BMI or ASCAP and more data needs to be there so they know that you are on that on that record and that it's right, that it's all, licensed are
3: you a writer or I'm artist? a writer
6: and a publisher okay. And I write my own contracts for, for when we do uh, music right. soundtracks. And my, I make sure right. that all the, instru- all the musicians are listed.
3: Right. Well, I, I agree with you. That goes back to the metadata issue we talked about. Make sure your data is clean. I, I can't speak for ASCAP, but I can tell you that at BMI, we have an automated online affiliation um, system. And if there are any questions about anything, you can always call and you'll get a live person there. Um, that's, that's what we call our open door policy. We, we do actually answer calls and we help new affiliates through the process.
4: Could you please talk about the um, electronic um, fingerprinting, the digital fingerprinting? It seems to me that it's the Wild West out there. There are so many different companies that are trying to jockey for position to get a piece of this digital pie. And I am wondering how BMI um, fingerprints, music, um, YouTube has their own platform, uh, TuneCore does. Can everybody get on the same page? I'm not sure that
3: TuneCore does. TuneSat, TuneSat, TuneSat. I mean. sorry. Right, right. Sorry. That's TuneSat, all they do, TuneSat. TuneSat. Yeah.
4: Right. So <laughs> is it the same electronic uh, fingerprint or no?
3: Well, all and if th-
4: not, why not? And sure. how could we? bridge that so we're on the same page because China is huge, Um, Indonesia is huge. There are a lot of places that um, you don't operate yet, and yet I find that personally 18% of my hits are coming from China, and nobody has any uh, connection there yet at all. So um, anyway, these are some interesting things that maybe could be thought about and talked about.
3: I don't know if you want to add anything, but I mean, obviously there's a couple of companies. You mentioned Tunesat, there's Soundhound, there's Gracenote. Uh, we at BMI, we work with a company called Shazam. Um, we, we think they're the most accurate, but, but there's competition in this market, and they all have their own you know, databases of audio fingerprints. They're more or less accurate. So I can't really speak technically to any of those, uh, but we have our own opinions about them. And they're more or less accurate, but, but thank God that they exist, right? Because that help, they help a to to detect infringement of your content, but uh, B, in our case, it helps us to accurately distribute the money that we collect because we know you know the performances that happened on television and radio and uh, in other channels yeah. I don't think you can join them. I think there well, yeah, is... Well, yeah, you
0: can send your CD to a lot of different places. Yeah, I mean,
3: Tunesat, like, you can all yeah. sign up with Tunesat and, and lo- upload your songs, and they will monitor mostly television, I think, programming around the world. But they're not, for example, I don't think that sophisticated in radio. So, you know, they're all, all of these services have their pros and cons, so, but...
0: And a lot, I mean, they're all proprietary. I mean, like, people invest uh, millions and millions of dollars to put together a database that's going to hook up to your fingerprinting software and that becomes an asset that people will pay you to have access mm-hmm. to and until the mark until this marketplace gets past that idea that this data is proprietary and um, you're going to have you know a dozen companies spending millions of dollars every year to try and put together what's going to be good you know like you know 80% of the time it's going to be good for you know 50% of the musicians, like all the musicians who are making money, their data is probably going to be pretty good. All of the musicians who are emerging, who are less known, s- entire genres, classical music, jazz music, world music, a lot of genres are just completely getting left out of these databases or they're being done complete. I mean, if you just go to iTunes and try and look for any classical music as one right. example. Classical is a like, disaster. It's a, it's, it's a complete disaster. I mean, how, how do you... But until these people, until these people are... are Open up their data. I mean, like, uh, not that it could ever happen in this universe, this is one of my dreams, but like, mm-hmm. until people start sharing the information that they have, there is no database that will tell you who played on a recording, who wrote a song. These are things that are known. I mean, like, th- there are other things that are less known and confusing, like who owns the publishing or who's the current copyright holder, but who played on a recording and who's, um, who who wrote a song those are two very very vital pieces of information that are out there but they're not in one place and nobody can really get it together it's really really difficult Um, and it's one of those things that people spend so much money on that they just won't share it at the end of the day and i think that that's a real problem especially for individual and niche musicians
1: yeah i'll just add to me there's a balance between the fatigue of like i said i have nine albums each of those albums has 10 plus songs on them that's Do the math how many ISRC codes do you have to keep entering over and over and over again Um, and like I said you know I block out a certain amount of my time as an artist to deal with these kind of issues because it does come back to me monetarily but I can't say enough to Jean's point of just like until people stop thinking about these processes as proprietary and consider the benefits of community open source and sharing we're going to run into this continued problem
0: yeah, they always think about the musicians last. Uh, I think we have time for two more questions. Um, where's yeah, the microphone? One right here. With you? Okay. Uh,
3: to what extent should artists uh, be transparent and forthcoming with their audiences about the, the, best, the best way to buy an album? Or is, is, at some point, is that too much information? Or, or disclosing all of their revenue streams okay. just to provide them a little bit of the reality of what uh, it's like to, to try to be a musician uh, today?
2: There was a fantastic blog that this band from England, I think, had, had put out and it, it went viral and because they, they did, they were coming out with an album and they listed all of their revenue streams for everybody to see and they said, just so you know, this is how we get paid. And it was so informative and I can't remember if the Washington Post picked it up, or, um, but, but it went everywhere and people were fascinated with that. And I think transparency is really important because people don't know. I was on a panel a couple weeks ago with another attorney from, um, I don't know, uh, some firm, and <laughs> I don't need to advertise for him, but um, anyway, he was talking about how awesome Spotify is and yada, 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 you know, and, and he was speaking from the consp- consumer spec- perspective, and from the consumer perspective, it is cool, and you can socia- you know, social media platform, everything else, and sharing. Well, I also wear the artist hat, so I also know exactly how much Spotify pays me, and as a representative of artists I also I was telling them I do experiments so with my Celtic album I didn't put it on Spotify my adult alternative stuff it's all on Spotify huge difference in sales now you can argue genres you know might, one might be more marketable than another but really the it's so substantial a difference so I'm not a huge fan of Spotify for the artist and, and it's pennies on the dollar Oh, the Celtic Album sells landmines above it. It, Because, you know, if you can stream it for pennies, you know, we're living in a consumers want things now and they want it for free market. And if they can get that, you know, why would they pay? (laughs) You know, some will. You know, your really devoted fans will, but it's less and less and less. So So anyway, I, I find it to be really helpful. And people that I've shared that with, as far as, you know, how much I actually get for a stream on Spotify people are less likely to use it. There was a fan that listened to my albums on Spotify all the time. I didn't know that, but, um, but he told me about this after, uh, after a panel that I was on, and he went out and he bought like three copies of my uh, Celtic album, cause it, or, or my, one of my uh, RTS albums, because he was just like, wow, I had no idea. I'm just, I'm going to buy these and send them to friends too. And <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I think it can be really helpful for the audience to know because really they're, they want to support the artist and they don't know what the difference is. Why would they?
1: Yeah. You have to second that. I mean, it's, it's up to individual artists. I think, um, you know, for me, I believe that I should be totally transparent um, with my finances and um, there are other artists that are following, that are doing that as well. I just think that um, for me, I, I am really careful not to frame it as a moral issue. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's helpful to frame it as a moral issue. Like, If you're a good person, you buy directly from me. If you're a bad person, you use Spotify. Like, I don't think that's helpful for this discussion. But I think what is helpful is to give people the information and to let people know maybe your preference or how things work out for you. I also want to say, though, that having had some experience with transparency and certainly gonna do some more in the future and especially in terms of this project that I'm working on now which was fan funded partially I feel I do, I do feel a responsibility to the people who gave me money to let them know where their money went and what I was able to do with it um, you also have to be ready though for the backlash from it because anytime you talk about money people are gonna have their opinions on how you used it did you use it right um, so I think you have to be ready for that as well like you, it's transparency is a double-edged sword I think ultimately for me um and it sounds like for you as well like it's just i I think it is really important to let people know um uh there was a piece on morning edition uh two weeks ago that i was on talking about spotify and um, i had the same experience where i had people on twitter and on my facebook page just be like wow i didn't know that you got paid that little money I'm gonna put your songs on repeat on Spotify, or I'm gonna you know, go to iTunes, or I'm gonna buy a record. So, you know, again, I guess the thing I wanna stress again is that I don't, I don't think making it a
0: moral issue
1: is a good idea.
0: Right. And um, I, I remember Travis Morrison, who's the lead singer of The Dismemberment Plan, recently was tweeting, because a series of articles about Spotify had come out, he was saying there's two things that fans hate. When musicians make money, and when musicians don't make money. <laughs> so That's we're out of time. Yeah. We're out of time for the panel, please give everyone a big round of applause. And thank you very much.